Inflation getting higher Makes it hard on the buyer Unemployment on the rise Gasoline issue filled with lies Rent being paid late Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, and now that we have finished up with Francis Parkman Jr., we are going to take a look at another nonfiction writer, but from a very different epoch in a very different field. And that will be uh, John Kenneth Galbraith. Uh, we'll be looking at his writings from the 50s and 60s. Um, in particular, over the next 10 episodes or so, we'll be looking at four books. Uh, the first, uh, 1952's American Capitalism. Then we'll look at The Great Crash, 1929. Then his famous, uh, maybe his most well-known book, The Affluent Society. And then finally, The New Industrial State. These four books all sort of feed off each other. They deal with similar themes. They kind of build up uh, uh, an argument bit by bit, especially uh, the first and the, the first, the third and the fourth of those books. The Great Crash is more of a more of a, a history of the of the moment. Um, but the rest, but even that one, I think, has some of his important ideas, especially with uh, how the the economics is shaped by the market or not the market i mean just the economics is shaped by the market of ideas or the ideas that are in currency at the time right and how a lot of things whether they're bubbles or mythologies of of economic laws they survive not because they're based in reality but they survive because people believe them um, and that's a very very crucial idea i think to his whole work um, other important ones are, are the importance of institutions, I think, the, especially in American capitalism and the new industrial state. The theme there is that there is a free market, that we are largely, our, our economies are largely planned in, in various ways. And uh, he comes at it in different ways in American capitalism than he does a decade and a half later in the new industrial state. But the heart of the argument is there in both of them. That is that big institutions plan our economy. We are in a planned economy, whether we want to admit it or not. And to that respect, I want to mention a book that recently came out uh, that I've been aware of, been made aware of, uh, called The People's Republic of Walmart by, um, what's the authors here? Leigh Phillips and Michael Rosworski. And this book, which I actually just read today, so it's on my mind, it's, it's not very long, um, is, is not saying, well, look at the subtitles. The subtitle is how the world's biggest corporations are laying the foundation for socialism. He isn't arguing that Walmart is a socialist company so much as it's planned. It's a planned market internally. And, you know, Walmart is as big as some countries. It was almost as big as the Soviet Union at its peak. Um, so it, you know, and if this, if the Soviet Union was planned, I mean, Walmart is no less planned than that. Um, and, and he thinks, or they think socialism could build off of what works in Amazon and Walmart, right? You know, the central distribution of, 
of commodities, necessary commodities, almost immediately from warehouses rather than having a million different shops. I mean, that's a decent, good idea. I haven't did a video about that, uh, you know, kind of saying, we, you know, to go back to the mom and pop bookstores at this point is a bit of like Luddism, right? And there I was using the Iron Heel as my argument there because the, the Iron Heel, if you remember that book, I, I covered it in this podcast a very, very long time ago. But that book by Jack London has a scene in which he's talking to these like small grocers and they want to join the socialist fight because they're being squeezed out by the big uh, grocery conglomerates, the big distributors and, and, and all that. Basically, it's the mom and pop grocery store being pushed out by the Whole Foods or, or the Walmart superstore or whatever. And so they want to be down with the socialist struggle, basically to preserve their petite bourgeois existence and and the main character says no 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 we're, we're going forward we're building off of of cooperation and combination because that's good for us it, it it creates the planning we need to eliminate poverty it's it's um it's it's got that efficiency right in it now we don't want it owned by just one guy or we don't want all the wealth going to just a handful of people we we want it to be democratically administered in a way but we're not going to give up those technological advances um and i'm only mentioning all this stuff because i think these ideas are, are sort of reappearing out there i mean we've we're, we're what 50 years into this neoliberal hellscape and and it's failed in every way i think you can't make a case that it's been very successful um and doing that much of I mean, maybe on the margins, you could argue it eliminated some poverty here and there, but you know, I'm not even sure about that. I think the definition of poverty is kind of skewed to make neoliberalism look better than it really is. Um, you know, by some metrics, you know, like extreme poverty may be going down, but other types of poverty, and that's largely due to the efforts of countries like China to, to try to eliminate it. But if you measure poverty by someone who makes less than $5 a day, it's, we, there's not as much improvement. That's if you measure it, as someone looking at as, as someone making one dollar a day or less and yeah it's good there's fewer people making one dollar a day or less but the fact that there's still a bunch of billions you know on the on the margins it's is another failure of the system right waste climate change our ecological crisis on and on we're seeing these these failures of, of neoliberal ideas and I, I found it very interesting going back and reading John Kenneth Galbraith's writing. I've, I'm almost finished with all four of these books now. I mean, they're actually quick reads when you compare it to Francis Parkman, who's dense and, and, and just a little bit harder to, 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 to swallow. Galbraith is a, is a very, very smooth uh, read. But I, I've been struck by how much it, it feels like, like the things he's saying are contemporary and relevant. Like, the power of the market and or the power of, of classical economics the the power and the belief in the market that's what i want to say the power of the belief in market capitalism is still very strong in fact i i took a bunch of books from the school i teach at some surplus books they had just to store away for my daughter's education at some point i thought maybe these will be useful you know ap bio books ap chemistry physics calculus all that stuff but i also took the ap economics book and I, I didn't really look at it very seriously. I just just put it in the pile. And as I was reading Galbraith, I, I said, well, let me go look at this book. And I was looking at it and I was reading it. And like, first of all, there's no mention of Marx, no mention of, of Galbraith 
even though he's a liberal capitalist thinker, um, not a radical by any stretch of the imagination, pretty modest guy in terms of his ideas, calling for greater public investment in schools and stuff like that. I mean, that's about as radical as he gets. I mean, he gets close to talking about a UBI in the affluent society, but he doesn't kind of get quite there. I mean, he gets close to talking about post-scarcity, never, never using quite that language. But anyways, my point is, you know, you open up that first book, that first page of that economics textbook, and it talks about scarcity, right? Which, yeah, we're always going to have scarcity in some things, but it's there in terms of housing and clothing and food. We are literally post-scarcity in those things. There's not a shortage of, of housing in the United States or in China, for that matter, right, where I am. There's not a shortage of food, right? There's distribution issues with food. There's income inequality. There are food deserts. There are real important issues with food, but globally, we produce more than enough food for the people. Cl clothing, I mean, open up your closet, right? It, you know, it's like grotesque how much clothes is out there. So on the basic necessities of life, and, and maybe with healthcare, maybe with education, it's more complicated how we distribute those things and how we decide who gets what. But nevertheless, we're, we're close in a lot of important ways to post-scarcity. And that doesn't mean everyone necessarily gets everything. In fact, I, in fact, Galbraith actually deals with this directly at one point in the affluent society, saying, you know, to, to, to furnish an apartment is one thing, or to furnish a house, I think he says, one thing, but to keep bringing furniture into the house until the whole thing collapses is, is preposterous, right? There's, there's, first of all, it's irrational. No one will do it. You know, we're not going to become hoarders if we're in a post-scarcity economic system. We'll all be less hoarding because we're more secure that we'll have our needs met if there, if 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 you know, if a crisis comes or something. So, anyways, my point being, I think these ideas are are still timely, and if they're still timely, I think it just shows you how little progress we've made in terms of economic thinking, in terms of. I mean, popular economic thinking. I'm not going to claim to know what's going on among specialists or what the Nobel Prize winners in economics are saying. I don't care. Uh, I've, you know, I've been pretty much disgusted with the field of economics since I took a undergraduate economics course and, and had to swallow the same stuff. So, um, yeah, but popular economic thinking, how we're still sort of rooted in this mythology of, of classical economics. I think, you know, supply, whether supply and demand or the market, those are the two biggest. And I think Galbraith's biggest contribution must be just really disassembling step by step the market mythology that it's there's not a free market. There's it doesn't work that way. There's not a, like a billion or there's not hundreds of thousands of small producers producing cars, competing for the price, you know, there's, it's an, oligop it's an oligopoly, right? And markets don't work in oligopolies. Right? He makes this argument in the affluent society, the new industrial state, and American capitalism in various, in various ways. So, um, yeah, relevant, but it's a bit sad that his ideas, you know, they actually, right now, they seem to be to the left of the Democratic Party to me. I mean, if, you know, Bernie Sanders was saying some of this stuff, like if we have all this wealth, why don't we invest in universal health care? Why don't we invest in schools? I mean, 
Galbraith focuses a lot on schools, you know, maybe now he would say maybe higher, you know, more investment in higher ed would be a good thing. You know, and that was what Sanders was trying to say, right? We should have more public investment in higher ed through free tuition, right? That's, that was considered radical in the 2020 election, right? Same thing with universal health care. Um, canceling debt, like debt moralism is, is still out there. This, this kind of idea of a moral hazard. And therefore we can't like forgive debts because it's going to promote bad behavior. You know, when corporations borrow and forgive debts from each other all the time, banks do it all the time, governments do it all the time to banks. It's, it's you know, the same rules don't apply to them. Anyways, my point is we're, 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 we're not making progress, I think, in just popular economic ideas. And, and I think it's, it's striking just how powerful that neoliberal kind of movement, the neoclassical trend has been, right? Because people hear these guys like Hayek and von Mises and these, they know about them, they're those names and those ideas are very popular, right? Sometimes they're condensed through people like Ayn Rand or other horrible thinkers like that, but they're popular and they're out there and they're influencing policy and politics. And, you know, Galbraith doesn't seem to be doing that anymore, despite his very, very close connection to the Democratic Party and Kennedy and all that. So that's part of his story, obviously. He, he was in government. He, he was like an economic advisor to presidents. He was an ambassador. So he's kind of gross that way, but, you know, it was a different, a different era of politics, I guess. And I'm going to forgive him for that because I think we can go to his ideas and, and take something useful from them. May not, it's not a guide. These works are dated. They don't quite deal, they don't quite approach our moment, but in some very, very key areas, I think there are important things we can learn from, from these books. So anyways, that's my sort of extended introduction to my overall feelings about Galbraith, having read the first three of these books and, and most of the, 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 the last one. So the very, very, very first book I want to look at it, uh, in this series, and I'll do, basically I'm going to do two episodes on American capitalism, two episodes on the Great Crash, two on the affluent society, and four on the new industrial state. So that's uh, a nice easy division here. Uh, about a thousand pages overall. Okay, so the first book here is American Capitalism, uh, published in 1952. Um, and with all of these, we get like his, his new introduction from the 90s, you know, which he is sort of aware of the reactionary turn on economic thinking. He doesn't really dwell on too much in these introductions. He mostly just says, you know, I changed some things. Mostly I kept these books the same. Um, but, you know, maybe some things are already dated. The kind of things you'd expect. But mostly he, he says, I'm going to keep the book as a historical document, more or less unchanged. Um, so what is the point of this book? Well, this book establishes the theory, which I guess I'll talk about next time in detail, because uh, it, it's kind of in the second half of the book. But it's called The Theory of Countervailing Power. So he starts with this idea that like the classical economic idea, the, the Malthus, Ricardo, Adam Smith, the kind of idea that there's a market and the market is gonna be made up of multiple producers and multiple consumers all engaging in some kind of self-interested 
buying and selling. And then you, since no one of these buyers or sellers will be powerful enough to influence the market in a significant way, prices will just kind of naturally go via an invisible hand, right? And he says, that's obviously not how the American economy works. It's, it's an oligopoly in most cases, essentially a cabal, you know, fairly close to a cabal in which either you have a handful of producers who have a self mutual self-interest to maintain a price a certain level and so they'll cooperate on it and they don't want a price war obviously um, or you know they're they're each so big that that they all have such a significant control over price that you can't really have a market functioning so what's going to happen in that case like take the labor market right so if you have an oligopoly you would it would seem that they would be powerful enough to not only control the price of goods and services, but essentially set wages, right? Which is what you would expect. They can say, well, if you don't want to work for us for a pittance, you can starve, right? And of course, most people in that situation will go work for the pittance. So the theory of countervailing power says, well, then what's going to have to happen is an equally powerful monster will have to emerge to counteract that powerful institution. So it could be labor unions, for instance, right? But it could be other things. But the clearest example he gives is the labor union becomes like the countervailing power that can then say, ah, we have as much power as you. It's, it's like to fight Godzilla, you need to have Mothra or something like that, right? And an even equally big monster to, to, to fight the one monster. And this is not, this is sort of emerges organically, almost by necessity when you have this consolidation of power in, in a handful of producers. Now that might also apply to like the supply chain, although vertical integration is something he brings up later on in a new industrial state. But let's say, you know, there a, a big producer may control the, may be large enough to essentially demand and set the price for, so, you know, suppliers. And then, so they maybe need to form their own sort of organization or become part of the, the power. Maybe that's more likely in some cases. Um, and, and anyways, that's the theory of countervailing power. I'll talk about it more next time, as far as, far as I understand it. Um, um, and, and why does this matter? Well, for one thing, well, he kind of mentions this in the introduction, because this gets to another one of his main theories in his life's work. He writes, uh, more subtly, but I think more important, has been the progressive bureaucratization as perhaps it might be called of the great industrial enterprise. Once the great firm was respected and feared for its external power, now very often it is a victim of its own internal weaknesses. We now know what we may, that we may have less to fear from corporate power than from corporate incompetence." End quote. So that's a downside of, of, of if you don't have a balanced countervailing power, right, then what's to stop? I mean, power of corporations is scary enough, but incompetence is maybe even worse. Um, if you think about the 2008 recession and, and the, the, how financial interests got us in that through their incompetence and, and, and um, you know, there's just, they're just a big fuck up, right? So that's the downside of it. And of course, in a democracy, it's, it's troublesome that on the one hand, so much ideological logic has been pushed behind this idea of a say a, a free market 
And when in reality that market doesn't exist and actually is creating kind of authoritarian tendencies in our societies through just corporate power, right? It's kind of troublesome that that has to come through other large institutions and there doesn't seem to be a democratic mechanism here to, to regulate power. And that's kind of a scary aspect of this, of this book. So anyways, let's, let's jump into the first few chapters of, of this book. By the way, this book's quite short. It's only, it's less than 200 pages, just, just barely. Uh, 175 I have here. So um, yeah, chapter one's called The Insecurity of Illusion. And this is a, just a kind of a weird chapter that like, I think it maybe is really set in 1952. If, if you're not of 1952, it's hard to really grok quite what is being described here. But essentially, he's saying there's this, on the one hand, great confidence in this post-war capitalist American system. Uh, it's in the beginning of a boom. Um, but at the same time, there are kind of anxieties. There's this insecurity um, about it. And that's a really important idea of Galbraith is, is how much uh, sentiment, feeling, belief matter for economics, right? It's not just the bubble, which of course is maybe the easy to go to answer for that, but it's also in things like our, 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 our ideas or just, right, even if things are stable, maybe we just don't feel right about it. We, we just feel this anxiety and that's what he sort of talks about, about here. And in that insecurity, people then fall back on, on what they trust and what they trust is Bentham, Ricardo, and Adam Smith. Quote, the present organization and management of the American economy are also in defiance of the rules. Rules that derive their ultimate authority from men such as of such Newtonian statue as Bentham, Ricardo, and Adam Smith. Nevertheless, there are occasions the decade following World War II was an example when it worked quite brilliantly. That must have been a, an edit from the later version because when he originally wrote this, there wasn't yet a decade after World War II to, to observe. But he talks about the limits of post-war success. There are groups still rule poverty. You still had African-American poverty at higher levels than, than others. But generally, you had prosperity. So why anxiety? And where does anxiety come from? Well, anxiety about, among business was this creeping of socialism, right? The fear of the creep of socialism. Uh, maybe the remnants of the New Deal, the, the New Deal ideology kind of continuing on and, and influencing how people like, you know, or influencing how governments, you know, craft policy, right? So there's that concern. The, the, the real threat maybe of the Soviet Union to the degree that existed. Um, but many people in business had this fear that American socials were right around the corner and that they would suffer from that. But on the other side, you had real anxiety from, from, from some corporations, some business leaders, and in the general public of the business cycle, like way, that constant fear of when's that other shoe gonna drop, right? It's, and certainly, I think that's still there today. I mean, it's even in good times, you see ads like, when's the next, you know, our articles or ads, when's the next depression coming, right? We're expecting that, and that's just the nature of capitalism. We know there will be upturns and downturns. It's the business cycle, it's in Marx, it's, you know, it's pretty much established in, you know, quote unquote, basic economics that there is a business cycle. Hopefully, we, we hope socialism, you know, has ways to deal with that. And I think they do. 
But, you know, certainly capitalism has a business cycle. And so there's that fear. And there's kind of, you have a, a growing conflict between government power and business power described here. Uh, liberal anxieties and fears about capitalism and all that. And, and this is just a really kind of cool chapter trying to set the mood of, of anxiety. And, and where the book goes then is to say, well, why is everyone so, what is, what is everyone so anxious about? What, what's that, that kind of undescribable, what, where's that knot in your stomach coming from? What, why don't you feel comfortable with the system that's supposed to work, right? I read Adam Smith, you read Adam Smith, it's supposed to just work, right? That's what I learned in school. That's what the teachers told me. So why is that? Why is there that knot in my stomach? Why doesn't it just not feel right? And you know, why are we scared about different things, but we're all kind of equally anxious? Well, he gets to that answer in the in the very next chapter. Well, maybe he doesn't want to percent get to it, but he starts to. And chapter two is called "The Foundations of the Faith," and this is basically a summary of of this of the conservative economic philosophy that that everyone sort of accepts he calls this like the conventional wisdom somewhere else i think it's in maybe affluent society he uses that famous phrase of the conventional wisdom here he just talks about you know classical economics as being what what people kind of believe as a, as a token of faith, right? What the ideas which are the deeper cause of insecurity are the common heritage of liberals and conservatives alike. They derive from a theory of capitalism, which has deeply shaped the attitudes of both. This is the system of classical economics, which was constructed in the later part of the 18th and during the 19th century, primarily in England. Those who would make its acceptance a test of sound Americanism should know that to a singular degree, it is an alien doctrine. Its early architects were Englishmen and Scots. American economists, though they added some important amendments and reproduced it in countless textbooks, contributed comparatively little to its structure itself. Somewhere later, he does talk about Veblen as, you know, as an American contribution to this, but he's, he's not really contributing to the classical theory. Um, so what is this classical model? What does it boil down to? And that's competition coming from the numerous number of producers and, and consumers, right? So that is, I already sort of described his, the way he goes at this. Um, quote, Com competition required there be a considerable number of sellers in any trade or industry in informed communication with each other. In more recent times, this has been crystallized in the notion that many sellers doing business with many buyers. So is he wrong about, well, are, are, are the classical economists wrong? Well, Bill Galbraith says, you know, not entirely. In the milk production market, at least at the time, yeah, or farming. A farmer has very little control over the price of grain or the price of milk. Because there's, you know, millions of farmers all producing wheat or corn or whatever. And they don't individually they aren't going to have much to say over the market, right? But that's not the case in in automobiles or for electrical appliances or or things like that. So I mean, it's kind of obvious that we're not in a, a that competition doesn't really set the price in the way described by the classical economists. 
Um, he talks about even how the socialists had this idea of kind of embrace the comp- competitive comp- competitive model as well um, and hope to maybe overcome it. And, you know, this is, is kind of becomes what he calls an economic theology in America, right? Now, I think that not, that anxiety that he describes in chapter one comes from people on some level knowing this is, this is a false belief. It's like, it's like, you know, you're, you're raised a Christian and then someday you realize it's all nonsense, you know, and your theology breaks down, but you don't want to admit it or you can't admit it. Too much of your life is invested in your faith or whatever. And therefore you sort of have this, this, you, you can't quite describe what that during that transitional period, right? It's the coming to the realization that this is just a myth. Quote, men cannot live without an economic theology, without some rationalization of the abstract and seemingly incohate arrangement which provide him with his livelihood. For this purpose, the competitive or classical model has had many advantages. It was comprehensive and internally consistent. By asserting that it was a description of reality, the conservative could use it as a justification of the existing order. For the reformer, it could become a goal, a beacon to mark the path of needed change. All right. Now, why is it so popular? Well, he tells us in the, this is still in chapter two, that it promises efficiency and increased production, right? Because here's the idea in there. If you're, a, if you're one of these millions of, let's take the farmer, right? Individually, not much impact on the market. But your individual farmer, how does he improve his life? He can't raise prices. He can't really do much to reduce costs because that's kind of set. Well, what can he do? Well, he can become more efficient and he can increase efficiency. So only the efficient will survive. And if you're not efficient, you won't survive. No producer um, can manipulate the price. So they must just be as efficient as possible. And since everyone will be as efficient as possible, you get overall economic efficiency. And that's, that's one of the appeals to this, right? Um, um, he also mentions here Say's Law. Um, I'm not that familiar with Say's Law. Just, I'm just getting it from what Gallery writes here. It seems to me that this model is, is the, comes from Jean-Baptiste Say, a French Smithian. And the idea here is that um, you'll always have full employment because demand and supply will always match eventually. Let me see what Wikipedia says. Um, okay, I got it here. It's a claim that production of a product creates demand for another product by providing something of value which can be exchanged for that other product. Uh, it's the claim that the production of a product creates demand for another product by providing something of value which can be exchanged for that. So production is the source of demand, right? So it's, it's the supply side. Um, economics. Now, Galbraith is definitely on the demand side here. So, um, anyways, these are though this this the cornerstones of the economic theology, right? <clears throat> then we get in chapter three, the problem of power, and why then in America is this competitive model, the Adam Smithian, David Ricardo, the classical economic model, so attractive? And it's, it seems it has a lot to do with American anxieties about power, right? Yes, it provides efficiency, but it also, it seems to be the most democratic because, oh yeah, everyone is just in a competitive market. There's the invisible hand. It's, you know, no one person is, no one 
corporation, no one producer can have undue power over the system, and therefore we all can live happy democratic lives because we're all kind of equal in this, in this market. America just has this dislike of, of power, and it goes all the way back to its revolution, to their, their, their founding ideologies, obviously. And so, you know, power is something that's abhorred, abhorred in America, right? So and the reality is there are a handful of super, super powerful corporations when Galbraith is writing this. Massively powerful, but no one wants to really accept that or admit it. So you say, ah, it's just the free market. It's just competition. You know, there's, they're not really monsters, right? Gobbling up all our resources and, and controlling our, our fates, telling us what to buy, what to sell, what to eat, telling us what our wages should be. They're not really that because it's all, it's all this imaginary free market. And it, I, I understand the appeal, right? The competitive model provides a solution, mythical, imaginary, totally BS, but it provides a, 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 a solution to your, to your problem of power. If you abhor power, the competition model tells you there's no, no, you know, nothing you have to worry about. Right? So chapter four then is called the abandon, abandonment of the model. And he, he, he goes through quite a, lot, a few reasons why this model must be abandoned or has to be abandoned. He writes here, quote, even the staunchest defenders of the doctrine required a rigorous form of competition. With Professor Hayek, they held that it had to be competition in which the individual producer has to adapt himself to price changes and cannot control them. There was also in the world of reality the need for performance. The system had to work. Were the assumptions of competition to be undermined, it would be a devastating blow. So equally would be the failure in performance. Both blows fell simultaneously in the decade of the 30s. So the two blows were centralization and and essentially the Great Depression. Uh, but there's some other things here, but those are what he focuses on. And so that's just the reality. If you just look at business history, if you just look at the economic history of the United States, centralization is a fact of life. Consolidation, integration, vertical, horizontal integration, of various types in industry after industry, automobiles, steel, rubber, tobacco, liquor, chemicals, radios, media, in everywhere, in every significant field, except maybe farmers, right? So you can, the farmers you can always throw out and say, see, the competitive model still works. But in every other area of business life in America, you saw this consolidation. And, and he gets into a little bit more of this in the Great Crash when he talks about the formation of trusts and things like that. So, I mean, it just happens. Now, why does this happen? Well, for good reasons. Right now, that's the a bit of the irony, I guess, in all of this is one reason to do this is efficiency. Right, the classical model says that the free market is the most efficient, but there is advantages, especially when you're dealing with technology, economies of scale, mass distribution, uh, complex processes, complex labor organization. There's good reasons to have this. Um, combination and, and, and large size. That's, that's what that book, The People's Republic of Walmart, seems to be saying to some degree. 
That's what the Iron Heel, that's what Jack London and the Iron Heel sort of said. Let's not go back to a bunch of petty, squabbling, um, small producers. Let's, we, we have here Amazon.com. Let's just take the goddamn thing over. Because it's pretty awesome. If it wasn't for how they treated workers horribly and, you know, didn't care about the environment and sent all the profits to one man. I mean, otherwise, it's pretty cool that... It can read your mind. It knows what you want to buy before you buy it. You buy it and you order it and it's in your house the next day from a warehouse. You don't have to go out into, you know, the stores. Like, my, my thing with bookstores, I got, it's kind of a pet peeve of mine, I guess. Like, outside of when I lived in Boston, you know, I lived near, I basically lived in Cambridge and there's a lot of good used bookstores. You know, I never found books I wanted at bookstores, especially not where I grew up, Rothschild, Wisconsin. Where the only thing we had for a bookstore was Walden Books, right? And what do you get there? Nothing, just the bestsellers and a few other business books, but not much. And that was what we had to pick from. If you wanted other books, you had to actually seek them out through publishers and things like that and order them. Amazon just opened up all these books that were, that were suddenly available, right? If they weren't the library, right? My hometown's library wasn't great. Um, but that's where I had to get most of my stuff because you simply did not have access on the market. I mean, talking about market failure. Right? <clears throat> but anyways, you see, so the point is don't go back. Don't go back to like the Stone Age. We have this, this system already established by these, these capitalists. And let's, let's build off of it. It's very, very efficient. Um, what else do we have here? Uh, why else does this model fail for Galbraith? Well, economies of expertise. Once uh, like Ford Motor Company built up its team of engineers and, and designers and marketers, it's not like I could then say, well, you know, I have an idea for a car that people would really want. I can start a competitive car company just like that. I mean, that's nonsense, right? I don't have that expertise. I don't have those employees. I don't have that massive talent, right? So even if I know how to make a car and I'm pretty good at that, I'm not going to be able to compete. It's just not possible. It, it He calls it a passive but highly effective handicap on the latecomer. Um, so you started to get this consolidation, centralization in business. And of course, the other thing that happens essentially is uh, the Great Depression, which was a fundamental blow to all this kind of uh, free market philosophy. And then not only that, you have the whole New Deal, the Keynesian revolution, all that kind of leading people who really thought about it to, to know that, that this Adam Smith classical economic stuff is not true. Um, so... Now, what do we end up with instead of a of, of competitive market? Well, we end up, according to our author here, we end up with oligopoly. Oligopoly, which is essentially, it's not a monopoly. It's uh, where a, a, an industry, steel, automobiles, whatever, is run by a handful of big firms that basically have a self-interest in not having a price war. So they'll set prices. And so they are an effective monopoly in, in many ways. They have, they do compete, but they're not really going, it's not in their interest to get no price war. So they're going to agree roughly on price. 
they're going to agree on on all those things and and that is really where this countervailing power model becomes important here especially with prices because of all the ways corporate corporations in big institutions inflict their power on us one of the most important invisible is prices right whether it's the price of labor or the price of of those final goods right and that's of course what's the bottom line for these producers is price so the authority of these producers over price compared to the seller or to, compared to the buyers i mean yeah the sellers the producers their control over the price compared to the sellers or sorry compared to the buyers who are numerous in legion is totally out of whack right and so you really the individual buyer doesn't have any power to really influence the final price the way they're the kind of maybe the classical model still works but it's a one-sided thing right it's not on the side of the corporations aren't playing by those rules i think i understand this argument i i hope i'm right if, I, if i'm wrong about something let me know all right um what's next well uh Chapter five, the ogre of economic power. So this um, just goes more into the negative aspects of, of economic power on one side. So this is why the countervailing power model appears is because something has to fight this ogre, this monster that has been created in some cases for good reasons or inevitable reasons or whatever. Something has to fight it just because economic power is so, so grotesque in practice. Monopoly oligopoly, offensive to the liberal tradition, offensive to the classical, conservative, classical market um, system. So what do you do about this? Well, it's antitrust laws is what has been, what was done, right? And he talks a lot here about the cigarette monopoly that emerged and the efforts to try to bust those trusts up, um, the trust busting, they, you know, just there are, there was governmental responses to oligopoly which were the antitrust laws so there's an awareness that it was um, bad but it really it's not enough to deal with it that way it's there's only a limit to what government can do in terms of breaking these up there's often not the political will to do it and it doesn't really finally deal with the fundamental realities of power right you can't create a, a perfect competitive free market if if the like the structure for it's not there it, it's you just it's just a feel-good thing your antitrust laws now here's another kind of irony in it for galbraith is that the corporate the ceo the the businessman he denies that he's powerful he will play victim he will say oh look at the oppressive government with their antitrust laws or their taxes he will or, or the firm will of course pretend to be just a neighbor it'll be in their advertising like a good neighbor whatever ge would do this coca-cola you know just a friendly part of your your sunny afternoons on the on the, on the porch with your buddies right or at the or at the little mom and pop store like on a norman rockwell painting you know they pretend not to be powerful they deny this but it's real 
quote, but the power he does he wield and decisions he does and must take make him vulnerable to prosecution under the antitrust laws. He must think of the effect of his actions on the industry as a whole, which is how a monopolist thinks, end quote. So it's, at the end of the day, yeah, you can pretend you're not that powerful. You can pretend these antitrust laws work. But at the end of the day, these people think essentially like monopolists. In practice, they are monopolists. So chapter six is called The Depression Psychosis. And this is uh, largely about uh, Keynes, the Keynesian idea. And if you're not familiar with Keynes, you got to go back to um, your economics textbook, I guess. But I don't know. I'm not impressed with economic textbooks these days. Uh, the basic idea is that government plays a role in increasing aggregate demand during the down during the business cycles, during the business downturns. Uh, these were ideas applied in various ways by different states during the Great Depression, most notably in the United States through the New Deal. And so, um, basically, if if consumers can't spend and businesses can't spend, the only entity left in the economy that can spend is government. So government should do that via, um, I think Keynes said through deficit spending, right? But sometimes you tax the rich, right? You tax surplus wealth and redirect it if you're a budget, if you're a budget hawk. If you don't care, if you're like a modern monetary theorist type of person, you don't really think taxation's about, you know, the money supplies, or, or no, I guess taxation would be about the money supply in that case. I don't know, it's complicated. We'll get to modern monetary theory at some point once I kind of review what that's all about. But, you know, yes, I think under a mo modern monetary theory, taxation may still have a role in income equality and the benefits of that. But the budget deficit doesn't really matter in that case. It's because government can always produce the money needed to match the productive capacity of the, of the society, right? And really taxation is more about inflation reduction um, and and income inequality policy. But anyways, my understanding is like Roosevelt didn't go full Keynesian because he, he, he raised taxes so much on the rich. And, and Keynes actually said there should just be government borrowing to, to increase demand. Um, and this idea is still there. I mean, we just had this huge coronavirus stimulus in the US and in other countries around the world, basically Keynesian at its heart. I mean, so these ideas are not yet dead despite 50 years of neoliberalism. Um, but the depression psychosis, it, it literally means, you know, the depression challenged assumptions about American capitalism. That, and, and yeah, when he's writing this in 1952, the Great Depression is only 10, 15 years prior. So it's, it's not like people are aware of it, but ideas change slowly. And theology, especially if you're if you're saying this is an economic theology, it's it changes quite slowly, and it's you know people still believe what they taught were taught in their high school grade school textbooks, I guess. So that's the depression psychosis. There's a lot of good stuff here, just for a good review of Keynes, a good review of what the New Deal tried to do. Um, and but that's also part of the cause of insecurity. So what are our causes of insecurity? The Great Depression, the rise of, of consolidation, uh, a, a sneaking feeling that our fundamental economic mythologies are false. 
and the reality of power in a handful of, of firms. All that together makes people, gives, them, gives people that knot inside their stomach that they think something's wrong despite times looking good, like that waiting for the other shoe to drop. And, you know, if you're a conservative, you say, well, it's the socialists are going to take over. If you're a liberal, you're saying, oh, there's going to be another business down. There's going to be another Great Depression or whatever. But there's something wrong. You smell it. You smell something's wrong. Okay, chapter seven, the economics of techno technical development. Um, now, this talks a little bit about the post-war boom and it's kind of set in the post-war boom. And again, I... I you know, he wrote this in 52. He wouldn't have had that much evidence or even time just to sort of observe what had happened in the post-war boom. So some of this may have been changed in the later version, um, just to give a little bit more context to the post-war boom. But here's one reason for your, your big firms, for, your, for the consolidation, and that is tied to efficiency, and that is technological change. Um, quote, there is no more pleasant fiction than that technical changes is the product of the matchless ingenuity of the small man forced by competition to employ his wits to better his neighbor. Um, we already sort of established that, right? This idea that in a competitive model, everyone will be the most efficient because they will, they have to. That's the only thing they can control. Well, in reality, especially in the techno technological world we live in, and Galbraith is in a no less technological society, when he writes it's different technology but still technological what can you do i mean i guess you borrow money and buy a better tractor or something it's not like this guy is going to be down in the cave like, like iron man and you know he's going to make a a machine that's going to revolutionize the grain harvesting it's, it's preposterous to think that well it would happen it's Basically, they'd end up just borrowing money and buying the new invention created in a corporate like R&D department. <laughs> so there it is. Anyways, um, development's costly and therefore only the big firms can do it effectively. So that's that's the main point of this economics of technical development. Size allows for technological change. Oligopoly is almost essential if you're going to have these, the rapid technological change that Americans had come to expect, and and we're actually moving this that economy forward, then we get chapter eight, which is kind of his little preview of the affluent society. We can tell he had all these ideas that he would write up in his later books at this point, as well. Um, it's called the unseemly economics of opulence, and essentially this is about post scarcity. He never uses the word post-scarcity. I'm imposing it, so forgive me for doing that. Um, but, you know, basically in the olden days, in the days of Smith, Ricardo, Malthus, and those depressing guys, you know, most of your income went to food, shelter, clothing, right? And it was, it, that's what you consumed. And that's what there was not enough of. So the basic problem of economic life for most of human history was making sure people had enough food, clothing, shelter. And on the margins, you can say, uh, you know, how big should the prince's palace be? Or how, you know, what kind of silk will the king, king have? There, there is, in how, you know, how much money is there for composers and artists and that kind of stuff? Okay, fine. But the vast majority of the economic problem was one of scarcity. Right. 
and it, and it goes back to something he says in the affluent society. Like, if you have an empty house, it's important to put furniture into that house. It's crucial. It's, it's, it's your essential thing you have to do. But once you have furniture in your house, if you keep adding more furniture, it, it becomes, you become weird. It's, it's, it's bizarre at some point. But for most of human history, we were in an empty apartment, you know, we're, with just a mat or something. We didn't even have the furniture, right? And it's only in the recent decades that that material wealth has, has, has become, was achieved. It's only that time that scarcity has been overcome. Um, but Galbraith is very clearly in this book, written in 1952, saying the United States is already essentially post-scarcity in, in those important areas. Now, again, I'm, you know, post-scarcity and everything, we don't need post-scarcity in gold rings. It, it, it's, that's not what really it's about. It's, it's about post-scarcity and what matters for life and what's essential, right? Information. Media, education, healthcare, food, clothing, shelter. All right, add to the list. I don't care, but we can we can agree what's essential and what's not. I think if we can't, we're we're we're, we're fucked. At least in terms of having any kind of democratic consensus on on, on distribution. Um. So yeah, but what is the problem here? Well. The, it's all great that we're post-scarcity or, or we have opulence, abundance. But it causes new problems. We end up with greater income inequality, for instance. Um, we end up with misdirected uh, production. Like production gets misallocated. And I, I might be confusing some things he writes in Affluent Society here, but that's a big thing he focuses on in that book. How it's like, how can we have like a million channels? I guess in his days, they didn't have a million channels, but we do now. How can you have a thousand channels and all these different streaming services and all this different media and, and you know, 50 different types of cigarette lighters, right? 300 different brands of luxury clothing, you know, 80,000 different craft beers. How can we have that and the potholes are still on the road or our schools are falling apart or or we can't deal with an epidemic disease. We don't have enough health care for an epidemic. You know, that it's not from lack of resources. Obviously, we have the resources to do that. I mean, it's like, look how many people go to make these Hollywood movies, right? And yeah, I love Marvel movies, but, you know, that's a lot of resources that go into making those things that aren't being allocated for, you know, making sure everyone has vaccinations or something, right? whatever, some kind of public good. So you end up with this kind of skewed allocation of resources, but that's a byproduct of, of, of power and centralization and monopoly as well. So anyways, I've been talking a lot about um, American capitalism and I gave an overall introduction to Galbraith's ideas. I'm really excited to jump into this and to talk a little bit more. Um, so in the next episode, I will look at the second half of American capitalism, which he'll establish his theory of countervailing power, uh, give examples of it, talk about the state, uh, the New Deal, and all that good stuff. So 
That's next. So, I don't know. I probably got a lot of this wrong. If you are pissed off at anything I said, you know, let me know. Send me an email. I'm trying to do my best here to, to convey the ideas of John Kenneth Galbraith to you. And I'm kind of sympathetic with most of what he says here. It, it, it seems to make sense to me. And I think there's a lot we can learn from that, even though the ideas might be dated in, in many ways. Um, I think it's a useful exercise. So I'm, I'm learning here from a post-war liberal. Who would have, who would have thought? So anyways, that's going to be it for now. Um, I will we'll see you next time with part two of my review, my analysis, my read-through of American Capitalism. The pressure is all again. Either way, it's still the same. Schools are crying too. They can't do the job they want to do. We can go to the moon and float in space, please.